and so it's, it's great to be here. Um, our, our series is on joy, and we're going to get to that in, in a little bit. Uh, Philippians, in some ways, is the most joyful letter that Paul ever writes, and, and so we're going to get back to that topic, but I want to begin uh, with a question, a question, all right? I've got my glass that has a certain amount of liquid in it, okay? This is the glass test, and the question is this. Some of you probably already know. Is it half full or is it half empty? All right? And of course, we're not really talking about the glass at this point. We're talking about you. So, how many of you say it's half full? How many optimists do we have in the room today? Oh, good. Uh, how many say it's half empty? Wow. I, was, I feel like more alone now than I did. <laughs> Um, I like to say that uh, I'm a realist, which my wife says is a, is a pessimist on an ego trip. Um, <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, so, so a lot of people half full and a few people half empty. Probably a few of us are parents, and so it really doesn't matter because it's about to spill on the floor and probably stain, and that's the only thing that really, um, that really matters. So um, one of the ways that we determine in our culture uh, whether you're an optimist uh, or a pessimist is by this sort of old uh, adage about the water. But I think personally the way um, you really tell if somebody is an optimist or a pessimist is not just by asking them sort of point blank, um, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist, but by giving them some examples of um, certain things that have occurred and then asking them to reflect upon whether they thought the outcome was going to be um, negative or positive. And so one of these opportunities for sort of um, self-reflection occurred about a week ago, and I know it's going to be painful to relive this, but I brought a picture, um, and <laughs> so there was a game last week, by the way, my team lost too, I'm a Chiefs fan, almost the same way, last second, all right, but how many of you, if you are, if you are a Cowboys fan, right when this last second 50 plus yard field goal was about to be kicked, you're like, we're doomed, <laughs> How many of you are that way? Yeah? Which maybe doesn't mean you're a pessimist. It might just mean you've remembered history, basically, <laughs> if you're a Cowboys fan. But like, I think a lot of Cowboys fans were like, here we go again. And yep, sure enough, sure enough, the gods um, hate the Cowboys. So um, optimists, pessimists, we could probably give other examples from sports, from life. Um, but here's my question. My question is, is, is not whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, really, but how should Christians view, really, the, the struggles, the trials, the surprises of life? Should we be sort of eternal, sunny optimists? It's going to work out, right? Or, or, or not? In some ways, for many of us, the, the tactic that we employ, I know at least for me, is it, it really is like my optimism or my pessimism is kind of a tactic. And I like to say, well, like, you know, if I think it's going to be bad then if I'm right, you know, it's like, well, you know, told you, right? Um, and if I'm wrong, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's like you, you get surprised. And so pessimism is actually like a tactic to deal with, with the struggles or the difficulties of life. But should Christians view the trials and surprises of life as, as optimists, as pe- pessimists? Uh, how should we view them? And, and you might think it's just like a totally... Um, uninteresting and kind of rigged question because, well, of course, 
of course we should be optimists, right? Of course Christians should, should sort of be looking on the, the sunny side of life. But, but I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that it's that simple. And in some ways, um, we could say that a um, certain form of optimism becomes a kind of naivete, right? And, and you become the kind of person about whom people in the South or in Oklahoma say, um, bless your heart. <laughs> bless your heart. You just, you know, not in touch with reality, but you're sweet. So um, in, in some cases, optimism can become naivete. And that's why Karl Marx referred to religion as the opiate of the masses, that it produces people that kind of have this sort of like positive, hopeful outlook when in fact um, the world isn't like that. Um, you could say that in some ways Christians should be realists. Jesus calls us to be as shrewd as serpents. And, and Christians believe in something called original sin that says that all people at some like basic level are bent towards sin or towards evil. That people aren't basically good at the end of the day. So, so should Christians... Um, be naive, we would say no. Should they be disparaged, we, should be, we would say no. How should we view the trials and the, the circumstances of life? And so Paul's going to give us four areas today where I think this question is relevant. And so let's read what he has to say in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. If you're new, the words will be up on the screen. You can follow along there or you can follow along in your own Bibles. Paul writes this to the Philippians. He says, now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you 
for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is God's word. You may have noticed the title um, to the sermon today is just one word, and it's, it's the word actually. And it was a bit, there's a bit of confusion in the sound booth when I you know, communicated that earlier. What's the title actually? And then I just walked off. <laughs> um, <laughs> which I do sometimes, which can be extra confusing. Um, but the title is just actually. Um, because in, in this text, in some ways, Paul is going to give us like four areas in which the gospel, in which Jesus, the Jesus message, adjusts our perspective And in some ways, they hinge on this one word, actually, right? He says this in in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And so we're going to look at four areas. The first area we're going to look at is the area of of trials, which Paul speaks to by virtue of his his chains. We're going to look at slander, which he, he talks about. We're going to talk about the possibility that the Apostle Paul uh, may have actually struggled with depression at certain points in his life. And we're going to talk about the area of death itself and how in each of these four areas, the gospel, the Jesus message, adjusts our perspective. Actually, Paul says, and and in some ways that word, it it signals a a kind of surprise, right? Actually, dot, dot, dot. It, It signals in some ways, a kind of uh, correction to what you might normally think. It's like a correction to like what people would typically think about something. If you watch The Office, it's kind of like when Dwight, Dwight Schrute says, false. <laughs> he just like sort of, you thought that, but actually false. It's something else. Actually, actually, it, it, it's sort of an invitation to rethink our perspective. And we have, I can say this because our kids aren't in this service, we have like an actually child, actually. (laughs) And from a very young age, she's like a tiny attorney or professor. They're basically the same. And and that means like whenever you say something, she's more than happy to say, actually, dot, 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 and then correct whatever it is you said, even though she's four. (laughs) It's like she doesn't even care that there's like a 30-year age difference She's just more than happy to insert the word actually and then correct, um, correct mom and dad. It's weird. I don't know where she gets it. Um, <laughs> so we'll begin, first off, actually, with the area of trials. Paul's trials. In verse 12, we read this <clears throat> already. He says, what has happened to me actually <clears throat> has served to advance the gospel. And he's like, well, what has happened to him? And what has happened to him is that he's been arrested for something that he shouldn't have been arrested for in a free society, just, you know, talking about Jesus. We don't know for sure which imprisonment this is. A lot of people think Paul is in Rome, which may mean that he never is is going to be released. We don't know for sure. He seems to think he's going to be released. We don't know exactly where, but we know he's, he's in prison. What has happened has actually served advance the gospel, and then in verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else 
that I am in chains for Christ. And so the first area where the gospel is going to adjust our perspective is the area of trials or suffering. How's that for an awkward noise? Well, we could say the area of Paul's chains. And I became like acutely aware that I should have chosen a lighter chain earlier (laughs) or or a stronger um, existence. One of the two. Um, but, but Paul specifically mentions at several points in this passage the fact he, he's not just in prison, but he's actually in chains. Which is like if prison is pretty high on the totem pole of discomfort, like chains is even um, one step higher. And I, brought, I took this from my buddy at the gym, and we, we use it at the gym to just make a lot of racket and the people on the treadmills look over and get really frustrated. <laughs> but imagine that Paul is its not just sitting in a prison cell, he's chained to a Roman soldier most likely. And they're just sort of bound together with this chain. And if you say, well, what do we mean by chains? We could say in this case that Paul's chains are a form of suffering that he didn't choose. It's a trial that he didn't necessarily earn by bad behavior. In some chains, some trials we earn by by just stupid things that we do, right? I I came across a professional athlete recently who after, you know, getting convicted for uh, performance-enhancing drugs and a DUI and a hit and run said something effective, I just don't know why God keeps letting these things happen to me. (laughs) I don't know what God is trying to teach me, he said. And I said, I do. (laughs) right there's some change there's some trials that you earn by foolish behavior and they're no less difficult in some ways they're still painful right but how much more painful to suffer for what you didn't deserve and so for Paul his chains are a kind of suffering that he didn't that he didn't earn and if you, you sort of boil it down chains at the most fundamental level are designed to hinder, to halt, to restrain, and to impede. You don't wrap someone in chains because you want to like speed them up or make them, you know, make it more easy for them to move about. They're designed by their very nature to hinder, to halt, to restrain. But Paul says, actually, they have served to advance the gospel, he says. They've actually, that's an exact quote, they have actually served to advance the gospel. And the chains that are wrapped around Paul become like the chains that you wrap around like snow, for your snow tires. When you go into the mountains or something, sometimes you'll put chains around your tires, right? Not because you want to stop your vehicle, but because you want to actually make it easier to advance up the mountain. And Paul seems to think that his chains are acting in a similar, although unexpected, capacity that they're helping him to advance, even though normally they would do nothing but hinder and and halt. It's an adjustment of what happens with trials or what happens with with chains. I heard a, a preacher say recently that Paul has come to learn that there are two sides There are two ends to every chain. Like there's the end that's like 
fettered, attached to him, which is uncomfortable and difficult. And there's the other end that's most likely attached to a Roman soldier. And there's nothing a preacher likes more than a captive audience. <laughs> there's nothing a preacher likes more than a ca- that they have to be there. And he says specifically, he mentions the soldiers. He mentions the maybe the person that he's chained to, that it's become known to the whole palace guard that I am in chains for Christ. There's this one end that impedes, that's uncomfortable for me, but there's this other end that attaches me to somebody else who needs to hear the gospel. And actually, those those chains have served to advance, to advance things. Um, I remember the the story that that Pastor Rod told uh, a while back when, when John Snook, um, just, just a you know, great pillar of Grace Community Church before he passed away and he was in the hospital after having a, a heart attack. And most of us, I would be complaining, glasses half empty, right? And, and here's John ministering to the nurses and to the doctors. And how can, I, how can I pray for you, right? There is two ends to every chain. And Paul has come to recognize that that they can serve to advance the gospel. John Adams has a famous quote where he says, every problem contains an opportunity. Doesn't make the problem good. Doesn't make the evil not evil. It doesn't make the suffering fun. But Adams says, every problem contains an opportunity. Last week, if you were here, Pastor Rod spoke about a, a, a young guy by the name of Nick Vojicic. Probably not pronouncing that right. Uh, you could go back and listen to the sermon, but it was born with no arms and no legs. And, and Rod told the story of how he has this incredible ministry in which he says, a guy with no arms and no legs has actually become the hands and feet of Jesus in a way that you and I can't because he has a very, he's, he's learned that there's two sides, there's two ends to every chain. And the gospel adjusts its perspective. One of my favorite podcasts on, uh, that I listen to weekly is, is something called The Moth. And it's just old-fashioned storytelling, uh, personal, true stories told live without notes, which I'm like, that's like a sermon, right? That's not what it is. I have notes. But, um, and one of the things they've commented when they, when they get storytellers and when they determine what's a good story, they say, it's never the success story that's interesting. It's never like, well, I was born perfect and it just was up from there. <laughs> you know, it was, never, it was never just this from mountaintop to mountain. It's not interesting. It's not relatable. It's not helpful. The stories that are interesting, the stories that help people, the stories that connect with people, are, and, and then we lost everything. And then we crashed and burned. And then we didn't know where the next meal was going to come from. And then the doctor called. And, then, and it's out of trials, it's out of chains that connection, life, empathy um, spring. Actually, Paul says. I have a, a good friend that I work with every day. His name's Dr. Weeder. And, and one of his daughters is named Emily. And she was born with Down syndrome and with a hole in her heart. And he, he tells me the story that the, the day they found out that, that she was 
going to be born with, with Downs. And, and here he was, working two jobs, trying to finish a, a, a doctorate, driving back and forth, pastor in a church, trying to be a dad to the, to the family they already had, and they find out that they're going to have this massive health issue and, and something to deal with. And he said, yeah, I, remember, I remember gripping the steering wheel on the highway and saying, God, why? I'm doing everything right. I'm trying to do, be a good dad. I'm trying to, to minister for the gospel. Why? And then he said, I also remember saying this. God, I'm glad that if Emily has to have this condition, I'm glad that she was born in our house, in our family. Because we're going to love her. And we're going to take care of her. And we're going to show her that she's special to Jesus. And they have. And she's incredible. She's brought, he would tell you, she has brought so much joy. The Native Americans used to say that the Downs children were, were sort of touched by the Great Spirit in a way to bring like unique joy to the people they encounter. And Emily has done that, actually. Actually. Like chains, Paul says, have served to advance the gospel, and not just for himself in the prison on the other end of that chain, but for those who, who know and love Paul outside of the prison. And we see that in verse 14. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare, dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul's chains actually serve to embolden the people he knows on the outside. Paul's courage inspires others to proclaim the gospel without, without fear. And, and we, we would all say this is not the effect that was in, in, intended. Change should intimidate Paul's friends to, to keep quiet and to sort of live and let live and don't make waves and don't, don't do what Paul did or what Paul endured might actually happen to you, but actually, he says, there's the word, it, it serves to embolden the people on the outside. Um, there's that scene at the very end of the movie Braveheart, if you're like one of the two people in the cosmos who haven't seen Braveheart, I'm going to spoil it. Um, William Wallace dies, <laughs> and he yells, freedom, right? And there's this little epilogue at the end of the movie where they talk about you know, what the English did to Wallace. They, you know, they tear him apart and they put his head on London Bridge or something. You know, they, they make this big macabre display of his death. And then there's this one line that the narrator says. He says, it did not have the effect that they intended. <laughs> and then it cuts to his followers like charging into battle and winning their freedom. It did not have the effect that they intended. And it's the same with Paul's trials. It's the same with his chains. And you say, why is that? I mean, that, it, it should have had the effect that they, for me it would have. I'm, like, I'm going to be quiet and like go read a book, right? Um, why didn't it have the effect that the Romans intended, right? That the English intended. And maybe one reason you could say is that people are hungry. People are looking for profiles of quiet courage. 
People are waiting for someone to speak up for justice and grace and truth, even against opposition. And so when Paul does that, it did not have the effect that the Romans intended. Actually, he says, my chains serve to advance the gospel. Before we move on, we should probably say there's a reason. And the reason that this happens is not just because of the power of positive thinking. (laughs) It's not just sort of some self-help cliche that causes um, his chains to advance the gospel, but rather because God's power, as Paul says elsewhere, God's power shows forth, is perfected through weakness and suffering. And trials present us with an opportunity for growth and an opportunity for witness. There's two ends to every chain. And the gospel adjusts our perspective on that kind of suffering. That's number one. Number two, second area where the gospel adjusts our perspective. And we're going to call this the area of slander. You could talk about it as opposition or as, as gossip, the effects of, of Paul's enemies. It says this in verse 15. Paul writes, it is true. This is the end of sort of naivete, right? It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Then then the surprise. But what does it matter? Question mark. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul says, look, I, I get it. Some people preach Christ out of good motives. Others preach Christ out of false motives. Wanting only to stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. And this is where you expect Paul, like the Paul of Galatians, to come up. <laughs> like, and he just, just, just reams them, right? But there's this question, but what does it matter? Whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And so we would have to ask, like, what's going on here? What's going on that there's these people who are preaching Christ, but only because they want to stir up trouble for Paul, and Paul responds sort of graciously and joyously. And, and so if, on the, at the simplest level, there's some debates about this, but at the simplest level, pretty much everybody agrees. Paul has enemies. Uh, one man said that in order to love your enemies, one must have them. Paul has enemies, both in, in the world, the, the, the sort of Roman authorities or pagan uh, culture, but also within the ostensibly Christian Jesus movement, Paul has enemies. There's one theory that there's a, there's a group of them that are basically following him around the Mediterranean, like, like little like mobile internet trolls, uh, just around the world opposing Paul. And they go by various names. Paul has enemies, and their message in this case is follow Jesus, unfollow Paul. <laughs> in the truest, most Facebookish sense, unfollow Paul. 
which, by the way, I, I saw a great quote this week that somewhat along these lines said, remember, the best way to create change in your community and world is to yell at strangers online. That was the... Uh, John Acuff, the Christian humorist, wrote that. <laughs> so that's what these folks are doing to Paul. They are encouraging people to follow Jesus, but get like reject this Paul guy. Unfollow him. You don't want anything to do with Paul. And in fact, they're going about sort of gossiping and slandering and, and stirring up trouble for Paul while he's, while he's in jail. And by the way, just a question. Like, wouldn't this just like eat at your soul? If like you're suffering in chains and people from your own team, quote unquote, are just going around besmirching, slandering, attempting to destroy, impugn your name. Like I would be like, God, like what? I, I, I'm suffering and my own team is trying to like, you know, Trade me. <laughs> what, what's going on? Just eat at your soul. Follow Jesus, but get rid of Paul. Unfollow Paul. And so we could all say what slander, what gossip, um, what this kind of behavior should do. Two things. It should rob you of your joy, and it should bring a knee-jerk escalation, a knee-jerk response from Paul. I mean, for me, it would. If I knew people were just saying all these things about me while I suffered, it, it, it should rob you of your joy, and it should bring a knee-jerk escalation. But actually, actually, Paul rejoices, he says. He says, I rejoice, because whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And so, why? Like, why does Paul respond like that, actually, to, to this slander? Because, to be honest, he doesn't always. <laughs> I mentioned Galatians, right? There's a group in Galatians that are opposing Paul, and they're also corrupting the gospel, and Paul pulls out the big guns. If you've read Galatians, it's PG. <laughs> like, he comes at him with everything he's got. He says, you're accursed. It would be better for, I won't even say all the things he says, but he's really, really strong in opposing his opponents in Galatians. And in Philippians, it's like he, he's nice. He just woke up on the, the happy side of the bed of the prison. <laughs> and, and so we could say maybe, maybe one reason is this. Even though they're opposing Paul, they are communicating the Jesus message. Whereas in Galatians, they're corrupting the Jesus message. And for Paul, the most important thing is that Jesus is glorified, not that Paul is. For Paul, the important thing is that Jesus is made famous, not that Paul is made famous. And yeah, they're preaching the Jesus message. People are hearing about it. They don't like me, but hey, live and let live. Jesus says similar things to the disciples when they get really angry that these guys are casting out demons in Jesus' name and they're not part of our group. And Jesus is like, why do you care? Right? Um, uh, Moses in the Pentateuch in the Torah says something similar. Are, are you jealous for my sake? He says at one point. Um, and so Paul 
is willing to be slandered personally in this case um, for the sake of for the sake of Jesus. We could say there are some applications to this for those of us who've had to deal with opposition, who've had to deal with gossip or slander. Um, perhaps it needs to be confronted in certain cases. Paul confronts opposition in other cases. But one of the things for me as I was thinking about this, like actually, dot, 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 I don't have to respond to every attack. Actually, I don't have to correct every person on the internet. (laughs) Actually, there are some battles that aren't worth fighting, right? Actually, there are some hills that aren't worth dying on. And just because someone has disagreed with me or impugned me, it doesn't mean in every case that I have to turn it to 11 and fight fire with fire. In this, in this case, Paul is willing to let this slide because he thinks for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, that one over there isn't worth it right now. Maybe for all of us, we need to consider like what that means for us. The fights that aren't worth dying over, shedding blood over um, for the sake of for the sake of the gospel. The gospel adjusts his perspective on slander, and so Paul just keeps scrolling, so to speak, without responding, okay? Number three, we've talked about trials, we've talked about slander, and now depression. Um, In many cases, and especially in Philippians, Paul seems superhuman. (laughs) He's got chains wrapped around him. He's in prison for the gospel and he's just like, I'm so joyful. I'm rejoicing and I'm going to say it again. I say again, rejoice, right? His chains are serving to advance the gospel. And for those of us who are mere mortals, it doesn't seem like particularly, um, you know, like just doesn't fit our experience (laughs) when Paul seems like a superman in these cases. Um, But actually, even in the midst of his joy and even in the midst of this very passage, there are cues, there are hints, there are pointers that that Paul's joy does not rule out deep and abiding pain and even potentially what we would in our own sort of vernacular, counseling vernacular of the 21st century call depression. He, He says elsewhere, in 2 Corinthians, it'll be up on the screen, he, he talks of the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia, where he says, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. You ever despaired of life itself? <laughs> like, N.T. Wright comments on that passage, and he, he talks about this is the language we would, in our day, we would ascribe language of a kind of mental breakdown, a kind of breakdown to some of the things that Paul describes when he says despairing of life itself. And even in this passage, there is this interesting discussion where Paul is considering whether it would be better for him to live or to die. 
he, he's discussing whether it would be better for him to live and to die. And then it says in the passage, in, in verse 22, which shall I choose? Hiresomai. Which shall I choose? And the, the 21st century Pauline scholar, Michael Gorman, talks about this passage. I use Gorman's textbook in a class I teach on Paul's letters. And, and he talks about this, this particular statement where Paul says, which shall I choose? And he, he writes this. He's asking. He says, in what sense might Paul have a choice? He's like, you don't choose what day you're going to be executed by the Romans. You're like, I'll do Thursday. You, know, you, don't, you don't do that. He says, in what sense might Paul have a choice? Could it mean that Paul at one point had contemplated suicide? Though such a suggestion sounds preposterous, if not heretical to many. In the ancient world, causing one's own death was often deemed a noble deed. He talks of Socrates and the Jewish, uh, the Jewish men and women who had leapt to their deaths or those who had committed suicide at Masada. Whether Paul was contemplating active suicide or a more passive death by not resisting the Roman authorities unless his words are hyperbolic, he really is hard-pressed and experiencing a complex and intense set of feelings. I don't even know if I want to go on. Which shall I choose? And many of us know that that doesn't necessarily mean even suicide. There's a point where you just give up, right? We've, we've seen it with, with loved ones. We've seen it. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann, the great theologian, talks about being in a POW camp after World War II, and he said there were, there were men who would just give up, and they would, all, they would be dead the next morning. Which shall I choose? Paul, regardless of what that question means, and we don't know perhaps, experienced great joy, married with great anxiety, deep suffering, and yes, potentially even what we would call a kind of depression at certain points where he says, I despaired of life itself. Which shall I choose? So why does this matter that the gospel adjusts our perspective on, on even this issue? There is a false teaching that once you become a Christian, everything is up and to the right. And it's just sunshine and rainbows and butterflies. And Christians don't get depressed. Christians don't despair. And it has nothing to do with the experience of Jesus or any of his followers in the New Testament. Jesus himself sweats drops of blood. Jesus himself on the cross says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Paul himself at one point says, I despaired even of life itself. Actually, actually, Christians deal with that at profound levels. And it does no good to confuse joy with happiness, to conflate the two, as if it's this sort of, this, this sort of very shallow, smiley uh, existence. It's, it's not. As I've had students who've come in my office and say, look, I struggle with depression. I've even had um, suicidal ideations, or I've, I've gone through this. Um, in addition to saying things like, you know, I really, could I help connect you with a professional counselor, right? 
because there are some things that you don't just say a quick prayer and get over, right? In addition to saying things like that, I also say things like, you know, it's fascinating when we read the Psalms, it's fascinating when we read Paul and passages like this, that many of the people that God used mightily in the Bible, it seems that they also struggled mightily. It seems that some of them endured some of the same internal strife and turmoil that maybe you have, and, and it didn't have to be the end. There could be a semicolon instead of a period. And so Paul evidences that as well, that while he wrestles with whether it would be better to live or to die, he ultimately ends on the side of life, that he will go on and serve God. Joy doesn't mean an absence of deep and abiding pain. Actually. Last one. The idea of death itself. And this is the thunderous sort of crescendo, the great famous um, conclusion to this passage. In verse 20, Paul says this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. One of the last areas where the gospel adjusts our perspective is on what Paul calls elsewhere the final enemy, the last enemy, and the last enemy he calls death. And it's significant that elsewhere Paul calls death an enemy. He doesn't try to gloss it over and make it pretty. Death is never pretty. It remains an enemy. But what happens for Paul is that even that enemy will be overcome. He says, whether I live, that's a win. Because the Jesus message continues to go forth. Even at the other end of this chain, it continues to go forth. But if I do die, that's the greatest possible gain. Because I go to be with Jesus. And so actually, at the end of the day, there's not a bad option. Right? What are you going to do? Kill me? I go to be with Jesus. It's a win. Right? Are you going to let me stay here on the end of this chain? Cool. Because at the other end of that chain is a Roman soldier. And all throughout the palace guard, it's become known that my chains are advancing the gospel. That's a win. Right? And so, and so in the words of the great poetic, philosophical rapper, all I do is win. All I do is win, win, Win. Either way. Somebody's shaking their head like, don't use that in second service. Bad choice. Um, <laughs> noted. Um, so, either way, for Paul, it's a win. Either way from him, the gospel will go forth, whether by his life or by his death. So the question is this. Last question. How does your perspective need to be adjusted by the gospel? How does it need to be sort of shifted by the gospel, maybe not just simply from pessimism to optimism or from naivete to realism, right? Maybe it has to do with, with what we talked about in terms of gossip or slander. Maybe it has to do with a, a trial, a chain that you're facing right now. Maybe it has to do with um, this, this area of depression that we talked about. Maybe it has to do with death itself. But what, what Paul says in this passage is that God has come to change our perspective on these areas. He's come in the words of Francis Drake, to disturb us. One of the things the gospel does is disturb us. And I've, I've read this 
this prayer before, but as the worship team comes, I want to read it again. And we'll worship together and we'll pray together. Let's pray. Drake says this in his prayer, disturb us, Lord. When we are too pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we dream too little, when we arrive safely because we sailed too close to the shore, disturb us, Lord. When with the abundance of things we possess, we've lost our thirst for the waters of life. And having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. Disturb us, O Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wilder seas, where storms will show your majesty, and where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. Disturb us, Lord. We pray that you would change our perspective on trials, on slander, on even deep pain, depression, on life and death itself, Lord, that the gospel would go forth through us and in spite of us, by your Holy Spirit. It's in your name that we worship. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.